0: The barbarians are still giving the Roman Empire a hard time. And once again, the Vandals, who we spoke about the last lecture, become a nuisance. Geyseric becomes the greatest Vandal king and one of the most effective monarchs of the ancient world. His name meant kingly spear, and he leads 80,000 of his people from Spain, because the Visigoths were pushing them out, to Africa. They capture the northeastern city of Carthage in 439. Geyseric made Carthage their capital since its strategic Mediterranean location gave the Vandals an advantage and they soon became a formidable naval power. In 455, Geyseric felt he was strong enough to take Rome. He lands unopposed at the port of Ostia and marches on to Rome. The Romans could not stop him. So, once again, they send the Pope, Leo I, to negotiate. Leo tells Geyseric that they could loot and pillage Rome, but he begged him not to destroy the city or harm its inhabitants. Geyseric agreed. Leo had given him an easy way out. Italy was suffering from a famine. He would not be able to have a prolonged siege against Rome. Anything of value from personal treasures to the ornaments on the buildings and statues were taken by the Vandals. For two weeks, they looted the city and then marched back to their ships and sailed home, taking with them a number of high-profile hostages. Once back in Carthage, though, the Romans still felt threatened by the Vandals. In 468, the Romans sent a massive fleet to take Carthage, and destroy the Vandals once and for all. Geyseric sent a message asking for a five-day truce, telling the Romans he needed this time to prepare his people to surrender. The Romans agreed, and then Geyseric loaded all the old ships in his port with dried brush, wood, and jars of oil. On the evening of the fifth day, Geyseric tows these ships towards the Roman fleet, Lighting the ships, he sails them in the direction of the fleet. The Romans, closely packed together, had no room to either maneuver or escape. Fire leapt from ship to ship during the windy night. By morning, over 600 ships had sunk, taking countless lives. The Romans were now forced to negotiate a peace, accepting Gaiseric's demand that the vandals be left to do whatever they wanted, whenever they pleased. Gysic will remain the uncontested lord of the Mediterranean Sea and North Africa until his death in 478. The Western Empire was barely alive. Otisir was a Goth and an officer in what remained of the Roman army. In 475, he becomes the head of the Germanic Federati, of Italy. These were contingents of Germanic soldiers in the Western Roman army. The Federati were tired of just serving in the Roman army. They wanted lands and a permanent settlement in Italy. Otisir leads their revolt and the Federati proclaim him king of Italy. In 476, Otisir captures the capital city of Ravenna and forced the young emperor, Romulus Augustus, to abdicate. However, he gave Romulus a pension and sent him to live with his relatives. The Eastern Emperor granted Otis a legal authority to govern Italy in the name of Rome. The Roman Senate gave him their loyal support throughout his 13-year reign, but Otis did not respect the rights of Romans, giving preferences to the Goths. Unfortunately, his good government and control of Italy made the Eastern Emperor jealous the emperor tells the Ostrogothic king, Theodoric, that he will give Theodoric and his Ostrogoths the Italian peninsula if they get rid of Theodoric for him. Theodoric and the Ostrogoths invade Italy in 489, and by 493, Theodoric had negotiated a treaty with Otisir to rule jointly. Theodoric kills Otisir ten days later, while the two kings were feasting together to celebrate the, theory, the, the, the treaty. Theodoric also starved Otis's wife to death, hunted down and killed all of Otis's loyal followers, and also killed Otis's son. But Otis had laid the foundations for a great kingdom in Italy that Theodoric now exploited. Theodoric spread his 40,000 Ostrogoths into three areas, Pavia, Ravenna, and Piscinum. He promoted the rebuilding of Roman citizen cities and the preservation of Italy's ancient monuments. The Palace of Domitian in Rome was rebuilt along with the city's walls. The Senate's curia, the Theater of Pompey, the city aqueducts, sewers, and a granary were repaired. But most of Theodoric's architectural attention went to his capital, Ravenna, he restored Ravenna's water supply by repairing Trajan's aqueduct. He married the sister of the Frankish king, Klovic, and he will rule Italy for the next 33 years during one of its most peaceful and prosperous periods. He took what was best from Roman culture and combined it with Gothic energy and physical power. He ensured that both his Roman and Gothic subjects got along. But probably the biggest success story among the Germanic tribes are the Franks. The name Franks comes from the javelin, Fraca, that they favored in battle. The story begins with a bull like creature who mated in the sea waters with the wife of a Frankish noble. The woman gave birth to Merovic, the founder of the Merovingian dynasty, and Clovis's grandfather. Clovis was only 15 years old when he becomes king of the Franks. Clovis, the name means fame and combat, will be transformed into the name Louis, and 13 kings of France will be called Louis. In 486, Clovis defeats a Roman army and takes over what is today most of modern-day France and Belgium. And then, strangely, In 496, Clovis converts to Christianity. The legend was that he had married a Burgundian princess who was herself a Christian. And one day, after years of happy marriage, Clovis supposedly asked his wife what she wanted most from him. And she replied she wanted him to convert to Christianity so they could be together in heaven forever. Clovis converts. Now this is a legend because Clovis had many wives and we know that on his deathbed, he still believed that he was descended from the God of the sea. So why then did Clovis convert? Well, because this gave him the support of the church and the Pope. It also gave him the church's infrastructure at this time, the church was one of the few institutions that had people who could read and write. Clovis was illiterate. We've seen that Attila and uh, uh, and a, quite a few of the other Germanic kings are illiterate. So Clovis wanted the church's bureaucracy to become his own government's bureaucracy. On top of that, the church could tell its people to support Clovis upon penalty of being excommunicated or going to hell. Clovis ruled with a combination of Germanic and Roman laws, and his kingdom was peaceful and prosperous. Under Germanic law, however, when a king died or any man, all sons, legitimate and illegitimate, had to have an equal inheritance. When Clovis died, he leaves four sons. So his kingdom is divided into four smaller kingdoms. And with each successive generation, we see smaller kingdoms. When Clovis converted to Christianity, it also meant that all of the Franks converted, technically, okay? Whatever religion the king was, that was the religion of his tribe. And as I mentioned, Clovis never believed himself to be Christian. Most of his people did not either. In fact, one of the big joys of the Germanic pagans was to ride out on a Sunday morning, find a church, lock it, and burn all the Christians inside. Anybody remember to bring the the marshmallows? However, with each successive generation having grown up in Christianity, the Franks became more and more Christian. And finally, by the 7th century, Clovis's descendants, kings of small kingdoms, were kings in name only. They became known as the Roi Fainon, the do-nothing kings, because they spent their days in prayer and fasting and they never cut their hair. So by the time they were 20, they looked like Cousin It. And that doesn't exactly make you an effective horseback rider or military commander. So if they were not running their kingdoms, who was? Well, the real power was administered by mayors of the palace, the maio domus. This comes out of the Latin term, which meant the head slave of the household a term that today would our equivalent would be butler, who ran all the slaves of the household. In one of the kingdoms of Clovis' descendants, we see a new line of people, a new family, and these will become the Carolingians. The first is Pepin the Elder, who became mayor of the palace from 623 to 640. He was known for his good government and wise counsel, and he controlled the royal treasury, dispensed the alms and privileges in the name of his figurehead king. He also was able to persuade his weak king to make the office of mayor of the palace hereditary. From here on in, only Pepin's descendants can become mayors of the palace in that kingdom. Pepin the Elder was succeeded by his son, Pepin II, who becomes mayor from 680 to 714. Pepin II used several wars, taking advantage of the weakness of neighboring kingdoms who were usually having fights between people who wanted to be mayors of the palace. And he began to expand his own kingdom. By the end of his term, by 714, Pepin II has restored his kingdom to the the size that it was when Clovis was ruling. Pepin's son, Charles Martel, which means the hammer, he used to be in a heavy metal group before he became mayor of the palace, continues his father's work of uniting the Frankish tribes under his do-nothing king. He kept up his father's heavy cavalry and maintained the standing army, which is very useful because in 732 he meets an army of Muslims marching on the wealthy city of Tours. While historians and Charles himself described the battle as a major one which stopped the Muslims from spreading their religion and rule over Christian Europe, the Muslims, in this case, were actually on a long-distance raid, hoping to catch a wealthy monastery. They had no plans of invading Europe. But Charles's publicity worked. The Carolingians are now seen as the defenders of Western Christianity. With Charles Martel's death, his son Pepin the Short becomes mayor. He's called Pepin the Short, not because of his height, but because he wore his hair short at a time when most men had long hair. Pepin was Charles Martel's youngest son, and he succeeds his father as mayor of the palace in 741. As soon as he does, Charles Martel sends a letter to the Pope, asking him, quote, in regard to the kings of the Franks, who no longer possessed the royal power, is this state of things proper? The Pope, harassed by his Germanic neighbors, the Lombards, quickly replied that the man who held the true power controlled the army and the treasury should be king. As soon as Pepin gets this word from the Pope, he deposes the rightful king, sending him to a monastery, let him clog the drains there, and... He is elected king of the Franks by an assembly of Frankish nobles, which were surrounded by Pepin's large army as they voted. Okay. Pepin now becomes king of the Franks and changes his name to Oscar Mayer. No, just a joke. He still now is King Pepin. At the same time, Pope Stephen travels all the way from Paris to anoint Pepin as king, in 751. The Pope also gives him the title of Patricus Romanorum, Patrician of the Romans. This is the first recorded crowning of a civil ruler by a Pope. Pepin's first act as king was to declare war on the Lombards. In 755, Pope Stephen returns with Pepin to Italy and Pepin forces the Lombards to return church property and to vacate the land. This establishes the papal states. Pepin's son was Charlemagne, nicknamed the father of Europe, which he tried to live up to by having 18 children by several wives. He had at least five wives and numerous concubines. In return for crowning him Holy Roman Emperor, Charlemagne gave Pope Leo III the supposed foreskin of Jesus Christ, which Charlemagne claimed had been delivered to him by an angel. Now, there's a gift for someone who has everything. In a deck of cards, Charlemagne is the king of hearts. Charlemagne's mother was called Bigfoot Bertha. This was a compliment, meaning she had attractive long and narrow feet. His legendary sword was named Joyus, which means joyful. And Charlemagne is going to bring all Germanic Europeans, except Scandinavia, into Christendom. And he achieves this by engaging in almost constant war. Charlemagne was a large man. He stood 6'5 at a time when most noblemen were 5'7. Charlemagne was tall, tall and broad in the shoulder and narrow in the hip, and everybody knew you didn't give no lip to Big Charles. He was a practical joker. His favorite joke was to put a chamber pot on a half-open door and then call someone to step into the room, and of course, when they opened the door to walk in, the chamber pot would fall all over them. He loved that joke. However, it was no joke that when he died in 814, His empire, the Holy Roman Empire, contained what is today modern France, Belgium, Holland, Switzerland, Western Germany, most of northern Italy, the Spanish Pyrenees, the island of Corsica. His huge kingdom was so large that he divided it into 250 administrative districts. Each one administered by a count whose three main duties was to collect tribute and dues, to administer justice, and to maintain a local army loyal to Charlemagne. This was the first time that anyone had split up their kingdom administratively. And it is from Charlemagne that we get the term county, which is still used today in Arundel County, Baltimore County, Charlemagne died on January 28th, 814, leaving only one legitimate son, Louis the Pious. And the name says it all. We see that this is a man who is obviously Christian, very religious. How religious was he? He was so religious that he only married one wife. And with her, he had three sons. When she died, Louis remarried and... With his second wife, he had another son. So when Louis the Pious dies, he leaves four legitimate sons. And once again, we see that this huge kingdom of Charlemagne is going to be split into four. And with each successive generation, the kingdoms are going to get smaller and smaller and smaller. Charlemagne, in a way, died just before the largest threat to Western Europe comes about, and that is the Vikings. The Vikings were a Germanic people. They lived by farming in what is today Scandinavia, Norway, Denmark, Sweden. The Vikings were very clean people. They bathed at least once a week, which was much more frequently than other Europeans of the time. Vikings who were brunettes instead of the what we believed stereotypically to be blondes, used a strong soap with a high lye content to bleach their hair and beards. This soap also helped with head lice. Drinking games were the most popular ways to spend time among the Vikings, with man-women teams contesting each other. Each team would drink, then boast, tell rhymes, and insult the other team. The object was to see who could drink the most and remain articulate and witty. Viking society was divided into three social classes. At the bottom, 25% of the population were the thralls, the lowest-ranking slaves. They were the workers on the farms and larger households. Thralls were despised and looked down upon. The second group up from the thralls were the calls, free peasants, They owned farms, land, and cattle. The vast majority earned a meager living. When a Viking wasn't busy farming, planting crops, they left their farms and went raiding. They often returned in time for the harvest in the fall. Raiding was very profitable. The third group were the Jarls, and they were wealthy, owning large estates, with huge longhouses, many horses, and many thralls. Jarls worked primarily in administration and spent their time in politics, hunting, sports, and visiting. When a Jarl died, his household thralls were sometimes sacrificially killed and buried next to him. Viking women had a relatively free status. They could inherit property, and after the age of 20, Unmarried women reached legal majority, but marriages were still normally arranged by the family. A married woman could, however, divorce her husband and remarry, and there was no distinction between legitimate and illegitimate children. Shield maidens who went into battle show that at least some women had military authority. The the Vikings supplemented their farming with fishing, and as a result became great sailors and boat builders. They began attacking Europe regularly in the 9th century, and they might have begun raiding because they needed women. Their first raid was in 795. They, during the raid on Lindisfarne, a small island located off the coast, the location was a well-known abbey of learning, famous throughout Europe for the knowledgeable monks and its extensive library. During the raid, monks were killed, thrown into the sea, or taken as slaves, along with many of the church's treasures. The library was destroyed. By 815, the Vikings controlled northern, western, and southern coasts of Ireland. By 825, they were raiding the interior of Ireland. And by 842, one half of Ireland was under their control. As I mentioned, they supplemented their farming with fishing because Scandinavia is not exactly a tropical wonderland. And they had to build ships, which they did. They were perfect, these ships, for short voyages. They were called Drachen ships. They were painted at both ends and usually adorned with carved dragon heads, which were believed to keep evil spirits away. They had one main sail. The Vikings invented the keel, a structural beam that runs from the bow to the stern and sits lower than the main body of the ship. The keel increased speed and stability and prevented unwanted lateral movement. The ship was coated with a watertight mixture of tar-soaked animal hair, wool, or moss and stabilized with iron rivets. The end result was an incredibly fast and flexible longship that nothing could catch viking longships ships had an average speed of 5 to 10 knots, but could reach a peak speed of 15 knots. The crew was usually 60 men, divided into three shifts. Shields and swords hung over the ship, and the men brought a minimum of food or water. These ships were for short uh, distances only. By the middle of the 9th century, the raids really picked up as word spread across Scandinavia, that Europe had wealth and was easy pickings. The Vikings sailed across the North Seas, hugging coastlines, looking for a river. As soon as they found one, they would pull their ship out of the water, set it upside down, cover it with the branches and leaves, set it, keep a few young men, usually the ones that were on their first raid, there to protect the boats, and then the majority would set out in three directions to scout out the area. What they were looking for was gold, silver, and jewels. They had no room for bulky goods. They preferred churches, monasteries, and convents for a couple of reasons. One, this was where the great treasures of Europe, people would give gold and jewels to the churches. On top of that, churches, monasteries, and convents were known for being peaceful. These were populated by people who were not trained and skilled in fighting and who did not want to fight back, even if they knew how to. As a result, the Vikings hated Christians, but they took advantage of the fact that the churches were where the money was. The word Viking comes from the term vikinga, which means sea warrior and all free Norsemen were required to own weapons and carry them at times. A wealthy Viking had a complete ensemble of a helmet, a shield, a male shirt, and a sword. Those swords were not usually used in battle because they were not sturdy enough for combat. Swords were double-edged and about three feet long, often highly decorated, and many had names such as Blood Hungry or Leg Biter. A typical freeman was more likely to fight with a spear and shield, and most carried a sea axe, a knife that was longer than a bowie knife. Bows were used in the opening stages of land battles and at sea. Axes were the main battle weapon. Axes are a multi-purpose tool. They can be used in battle, but they can be used to cut trees down or branches. They can be used... Uh, for a variety of of reasons. These battle axes had long handles, were light, well-balanced, and deadly. The long handles allowed the warriors a longer reach in a fight. The elite guard of King Canute were armed with two-handed axes that could split shields or metal helmets with ease. All Viking men carried a round shield for protection, which could be up to three and a half feet wide, made of wooden boards riveted together, with a central hole for a hand grip. It would, they were, these shields were also highly decorated, and some were painted with patterns or mythological heroes. Helmets were basically an iron bowl that protected the head, and many had a nose piece to protect the face. Poorer Vikings, without access to chain mail, wore thick padded leather garments, which gave some protection from edged weapons. They took an immense joy in battle, and as I mentioned, the 60 men would split up into three groups, look around, hopefully trying to find a church. Then, when whatever they found, they would come back and they would report to the group who would make plans accordingly as to what they were going to attack. The Vikings would wait until just before sunrise, and they would attack either a village or a preferably a church or a monastery. And the reason for this was the inhabitants would most likely be still asleep. The Vikings would wear male shirts underneath a red shirt and they would charge. And of course, even if somebody was a quick waker-upper and they plunged the knife, the knife could not go through because the male shirt underneath it would stop it. The red shirt worn on top gave the appearance of blood. So very quickly, the legend grew that you could put your knife into a Viking, but they would not die. Vikings took an immense joy in battle. A man's reputation was everything to a Viking. Quick wit, bravery, and action were among the key attributes for a Viking warrior. But to be remembered for great deeds was most important of all cattle die, kindred die, we ourselves shall die, but one thing that never dies, the reputations of the dead. Their best weapon, however, was terror and psychological uh, warfare. As I mentioned, they would quickly in the morning sweep in and they would kill anybody that got in their way. However, they always let a few people escape. And the reason for this was they wanted to spread the word of their invincibility. This way, when they showed up at the next convent or town, they would be offered a ransom or people would just give in rather than trying to defeat them. Their first attack on Paris was in 845. In 40 years... They besieged Paris four times, pillaged it three times, and burnt it to the ground twice. Finally, in 911, the French king, Charles the Simple, and the name says a lot, makes a treaty with the Viking chief Rollo and gives him the northwestern part of France in exchange for leaving Paris alone. This territory will become known as Normandy, Land of the Northmen. The joy in battle, and many times you had a group of men called berserk gangers and women. Women fought in battle, obviously not as many as men, but women, as I said, the shield maidens, would fight in battle. But the berserk gangers were men or women that just before battle would eat hallucinogenic mushrooms. And when they raced into battle, they were so hopped up on these mushrooms that they didn't even know where they were. The chief god of the Vikings also helped in battle. This was Odin, a magician, a tall old man who wore a cloak, a broad hat, and usually carried a spear. He had only one eye, having given one of his eyes to obtain knowledge, and you thought college tuition was high. Odin made the heavens for the gods, the middle world for humans and dwarfs, and the underworld for the dead. He created the first man from an ash tree and a woman from an elm tree. A relentless seeker of wisdom. Odin could care less for justice, fairness, respect for law, or respect for the societal conventions. He rode an eight legged horse whose teeth were inscribed with ruin, with runes, and the ability and the horse had the ability to gallop through the air and over the sea. When Odin traveled, he was always accompanied by two ravens and two wolves. If you called out Odin's name in battle, he would strike enemies deaf and blind, turning their swords into sticks. He loved berserkers, and he favored men and women, regardless of their social class, who had intelligence, creativity, and above all, were competent in war of all against all. Odin loved causing conflicts and shifts in power. A common way of securing Odin's favor in battle was to throw a spear over the enemy. This meant that you were sacrificing them to Odin, and you cried out, Odin owns ye all. If you died in battle, it didn't matter. You went to Valhalla. Twenty-one beautiful young women, Valkyries, scouted every battlefield, choosing the bravest dead warriors to take to Valhalla. The flickering light of their armor is the Aurora Borealis. Once in Valhalla, which was a great hall, the warriors would spend their days hunting and fighting, and their nights drinking and fighting. They would also sleep with virgins, who in the morning would become virgins again. By the 870s, the Vikings had split into two distinct groups. There were those who every spring would leave Scandinavia, raid all of Europe, and then would sail back to Scandinavia to spend the winters with their family. But there were those who, having come to Europe, settled. They spent the winter, they spent their years there, and they married local women, had children with them, and these children blended the the Viking customs with those of whatever society they uh, were living in. As a result, we begin to see that the Vikings become assimilated into Europe.